Come to our reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the whole of the chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of, it gra- eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox whilst it is treading out the grain. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when the ploughman ploughs and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in any race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. It was easy for critics of the Apostle Paul to give him a hard time. People in Corinth tended to look down their noses at him a bit and despise him because he was a blue-collar worker. 
He was a manual labourer who spent long hours in his workshop making tents. Not the kind of thing you aspired to do. And if you took him at face value, it was quite easy to underrate him and think he wasn't up to much. Whereas other apostles were happy to accept financial support from the church for themselves and their wives, Paul refused to do so while he was at Corinth. And there were some who were debating whether or not his reluctance to accept support meant that he wasn't really qualified to be an apostle. A real apostle would have lived there at the church's expense. And another complaint on top of that was that he was inconsistent. He modified his behaviour to suit the company he kept. So if he was spending time with with law-abiding Jews, he would observe the Jewish food laws and only eat kosher meat. If he was Gentiles, well, he would eat and drink whatever they did. In those days, what you ate was a subject of deep controversy, proving the church has always had the tendency to get bogged down in matters matters of quite trifling importance. But there you are, the problem with buying meat in those days wasn't whether it was horse labelled as beef, but whether the animal the meat had come from had been sacrificed in a religious ritual. If you ate meat that was sold in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to a pagan god in a temple, was that a problem or not? Some people thought the gods were a waste of time and it didn't really bother them. Other people, it was really important that they didn't eat meat that had been contaminated by some pagan religious ritual. And Paul, well, you know, when he was with one group of people, he behaved this way. When he was with another group of people, he behaved that way. There was no consistency at all. He was a social comedian. He just liked to blend in with the company he kept. So in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul explains himself. And he makes it clear that all his behaviour, which appears to be inconsistent, actually arises out of one single principle, and that is devotion and commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was what drove him. God had given him the commission to tell as many people as possible the good news that in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, God had given them a saviour. And in this, Paul found himself completely beholden to God, to the point where he had no choice in the matter. Like everyone else called by God to be an evangelist, it was in his blood. It was part and parcel of his DNA. He couldn't get away from it. When he woke up in the morning, it wasn't a matter of, do I feel like sharing Jesus with someone today? It was a matter of, who am I going to share Jesus with today? He was compelled to do it. If he wasn't preaching the gospel, there was something seriously wrong. So he had no choice. And he wanted above all costs to avoid the impression that this was his way of making a living. As if preaching the gospel was more lucrative than making tents. He didn't want people thinking, oh Paul is just doing that because he can get some money out of us. He wasn't interested in people's money, he was only interested in their salvation. Everyone's salvation. It didn't matter who you were, what your nationality was, your social standing, your past history. Paul was absolutely persuaded that that there was enough life-changing power in the good news of Jesus for anyone, anyone, to be saved through trusting Christ. And he broke through every barrier to get alongside people. Whoever he happened to be talking to, he identified with them as closely as possible so as not himself to stand or get in their way of relating to Christ in him. So he met people where they were, 
because he believed that God could save them as they were, whoever they were, whether they kept the law of God or ignored it, whether they ate the right food or not, whether they believed that idols were real spiritual beings to be shunned or just objects made of wood and metal. For Paul, all these things were secondary compared with the primary overriding principle that whoever he was talking to, God gave his son for them. God wanted to save them through Jesus Christ. So whoever they were, whatever they'd done, whoever they behaved, whatever they believed, the gospel of Christ was the power of God for their salvation. And that was Paul's overriding conviction that he never compromised. A passion for the good news of Jesus Christ and a desire to see other people come to faith in Christ. So in Christ, he didn't consider himself obliged to keep the Jewish food laws. But if he was having a meal with those who did keep the Jewish food laws, well, he would eat as they ate. He would curtail his freedom to eat whatever for their sake. And he would associate with them as one who chose to keep the law. But he said, I'm not obliged to do that, but I choose to do it for their sake. My only loyalty is to Christ. And again, if he was eating and drinking with those who thought that the food laws were out of date and the idols were a load of rubbish, Paul would eat and drink with them. He might ignore the letter of the law, but he would always keep true to the essential core of the law, loving God and your neighbour with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, as Jesus had taught him. So Paul said that his guiding principle was that he should become all things to all men, so that by all possible means he might save some of them. And he said that because he was an evangelist. But to some extent that is God's mandate to the church as well. To become all things to all people so that we might by all things save some. Because we have the commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And that means going to people who are different to us and sharing Jesus with them. But you don't have to go to another country to find people who are different to us. You can go into Horsham and find people who are different to us. And we're still called to share Christ with them. So there is a challenge to us there. I suspect. Because had he been here in 21st century Paul Horsham, Paul would have been out chatting to people in the Carfax market or the Queen's Head, meeting people on their turf where they felt most comfortable. Whereas we feel most comfortable here, where it's safe and where we're people that we know who are a bit like us. Looking round, mainly middle-aged plus, mainly middle class, mainly middle earners, uh, mainly Middle England, really. But the consequence of that is that it's easy for people to think that in order to become a Christian, I have to become like the people at Brighton Road. And it's quite nice for us if they do. But the problem with that is that the faith in Christ comes loaded with a whole package of expectations about how you're going to dress, how you're going to talk, how much disposable income you might have, and all that kind of other stuff. And we like people who are like ourselves. It's easier for us to accept them. It's easier for, us, for them to feel welcome. But all these things are barriers in the way of people who aren't like us meeting Jesus. And that's why Paul went to great lengths to cross those barriers to meet people where they were, as they were. Because he wasn't just committed to talking to people who were like himself. Everyone was fair game for the gospel because he was convinced that Jesus could save them. So the driving force between our, our work and our witness and our desire to relate to other people isn't, does this person fit in to Brighton Road? It is how many barriers are we prepared to cross to share Jesus with them and relate to them.
Because Christ meets people where they are and changes them to become more like him. Not like us, like him. We would rather he change people to become like us. But in actual fact, for Christ to work in someone's life, that might make them very different to us, but still a follower of Jesus Christ. And let's not suppose that this is just a problem that's particular to Brighton Road. Throughout the history of Christian mission, the problem has been for missionaries, am I changing these people to become like Christ, or am I changing them to become like me? And that's always been an issue that people sharing Christ have faced. I was reading an article in Third Way the other day by Stephen Tompkins about David Livingstone, who was arguably one of our greatest missionaries. But he only ever made one convert, Chief Sashili from the Bakwena tribe. And Livingston insisted that, that Sashili divorce four of his five wives and stop the practice of rainmaking in his tribe, which was a bad time to do it because they were going through the worst drought that they'd ever known for a period of four years. And when Sashili backtracked on the issues of polygamy and rainmaking, Livingston wrote him off as a backslider. But Tompkins points out that Sashili remained a Christian, actually and probably became a better preacher, a theologian, and a missionary than Livingstone, because he made sense of the Bible in his own context, and established what was a genuinely African form of Christianity, rather than imposing a Western form of Christianity on African people. It's a challenging story that raises questions. Polygamy and rainmaking clearly have absolutely no place whatsoever in British Christianity, and they're unlikely ever to do so. Are they in or out for African Christians? And this was an issue that all missionaries to Africa have wrestled with from that day to this. Are there aspects that need to be banned when people come to Jesus, or are there aspects that in some way can be incorporated into the lifestyle of those who follow the gospel of Jesus Christ? And whereas Livingston and Paul were both absolutely committed to sharing Jesus, in some ways the contrast between them could not have been greater. Because Livingston was committed to imposing his version of Christianity on Sashili, whereas Paul, for his part, bent over backwards to meet people where they were in their culture and enable them to find Christ there. With all the tensions in the church that resulted when people who behaved very differently became Christians and were out of step with everybody else. And a lot of the letters he wrote and the tensions within the church were precisely because of that. Because he said, if you're going to become a Christian, you haven't got to become like me. We can include you in the church on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ and work out how that works out in practice. But we're called to embrace you as brothers and sisters, even if you are different to us. Well, what about us in Brighton Road? How does this affect us? It's a reminder to us that we are called, actually, to go to and welcome and accept people who don't fit the Brighton Road mould at all who are not like us particularly. The greater the diversity within the body of Christ, the greater God rejoices over it, though it does cause headaches and tensions for us as we work out how do we relate to this or that particular kind of person. But I suspect that while we are kind of quite similar here in some ways, midweek we are all rubbing shoulders with people who are not part of the Brighton Road culture and who you really think, I'm not. I really couldn't see them easily settling into Brighton Road on a Sunday morning. That doesn't matter though, because we are still called to represent Christ to them.